Welcome back to World War Now, everybody. I am your host, Conrad Franz, joined as always by Dmitry Kalyagin. And even though it hasn't even been seven full days since our previous episode, there's been so much news. You know, as usual, Black Swan events have interrupted the usual flow of our slow and steady, not slow and steady, but, you know, steady, consistent coverage of the unfolding Third World War, which is always exciting in and of itself. But as usual, some some out-of-the-blue events have injected themselves into the conversation. Of course, we're talking about Navalny's death, the Greek legalization of sodomite marriage, and a number of other things. Of course, we're going to start here with the fall of Avdivka. But, Dimitri, how are you doing this week? Doing great, Conrad. And yes, it's been a packed week of news, both good and bad, confusing as well, and definitely exciting for all those actually listening to what's happening at the moment. Firstly, the exciting news. Finally, the siege of Avdiivka has come to an end with a decisive Russian victory. It was written in the stars, so to speak. It was basically unquestionable to, to the point where military strategy would show you that the Russians have almost surrounded in a perfect cauldron the village of Avdiivka as well as the massive chemical factory, which, which was situated more on the Ukrainian northern side of the Avdiivka village town. And so this factory was like the last stronghold, this last like Lord of the Rings in Helm's Deep, which the Ukrainians were holding. What's interesting is almost seven days ago before the fall of Avdiivka, which by the way has fallen, only several hours ago, before we're making this as we're making this recording, which is why we're you know pretty excited for the news and it's quite good. But the Avdivka factory was actually entered into by an entire brigade of Azov battalion, you know those pagan neo-Nazi men who we saw at Mariupol and Bakhmut earlier in the SMO years. And so the Azov battalion arrives. They have cameras. They have their GoPros, their telephones. They start you know they have big Telegram channels and Twitter channels. They start filming and reporting what's going on. They're like the Russians have completely surrounded us. It's almost like that. Mines of Moria scene. There is no retreat. It's like drums in the deep. And they're actually reporting that the Russians are bombing them with over 60 Soviet fab bombs, which are dropped from planes over one day, which is almost one massive fab bomb every 20 minutes, give or take maybe even half an hour. So Avdiivka was completely covered by bombs. They're raining bombs down, not just on the village and town, which by the way is completely evacuated, but the Russians were also raining these bombs down on the chemical factory where this Azov battalion brigade was, you know, entrenched. And so just a few hours ago, you know, the newly sort of christened commander of the Ukrainian special, you know, Ukrainian army and the Ukrainian forces in Kiev, Alexander Sirsky, the Judas, the former Russian who became a Ukrainian and now serves as Zelensky's right-hand man that is, as his military commander, has announced that Avdiivka will be evacuated and that Ukrainian troops have almost completely now, uh, several hours passed, but yes, have already abandoned, including the Azov battalion. So we won't see any Azov prisoners unlike Mariupol in May of 2022 or, you know, in Bakhmut in May of 2023. It's funny how these months kind of go one after the other, these three big sages of this now almost, you know, two-year-long war at this point. We're moving up to the second anniversary soon. But Avdiivka, finally, we, you know, the Russians and Ukrainians have been fighting in this village and around this chemical plant for already almost six, I would say six, seven months. Intensely, the siege has been lifted it's been completely the village has been conquered we see russian flags all over the town it's a much smaller town than bakhmut it has less of these sort of uh, apartment buildings less of none no sky rise but nevertheless an impressive victory for russia and a great boost to their morale yeah of course Avdivka. we 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 did say that it was possible but we were frankly more hopeful when it started that it wouldn't be another bakhmut situation but it kind of turned into another bakhmut situation of course not to the detriment of any of the soldiers or commanders involved, it was literally like the sentinel of built-up military equipment and armor that had been like the main source of bombings of Donetsk City for the past nine-plus years at this point. 
And that's probably the most hopeful thing out of this victory on the ground is that it'll be a lot harder for them to just, you know, casually cluster bomb the markets at the center of Donetsk city, you know, and just kill like nine, 10 people just because, you know, they feel like it, which will be a good thing for morale and these new territories and whatnot. And will make it more capable for people to move back there. Because when I, when I was in Russia, I met, you know, people, this girl, she was like 18. She was from Donetsk, but she hadn't been there in like three, four years because, you know, just too dangerous. And it was just when things had started, she had even, you know, had to leave and everything. So there's all sorts of people like that because Donetsk was one of the biggest cities in Ukraine. And Ukraine, again, smaller than Russia, but still a country of, you know, 40 plus million people. Russia, you know, what, 140 million. So the biggest cities in Ukraine, which are now, so many of them becoming parts of Russia, are now going to be some of the biggest cities in Russia. So people are going to be moving around. And as Evdivka finally falls, the question kind of starts, you know, the question kind of arises. What's next? Of course, we've heard about the Kharkov possible offensive, and we've heard Putin recently say that, you know, the only mistake of the SMO is not going in sooner, which, you know, we've been saying on the show since the very beginning. And in theory, that, you know, saying something like that does point to a possible future offensive. But I guess the question that really arises, Dimitri, is, is this the best we're going to see? Like, is the only way we can see territory taken this extremely long and drawn out cauldron tactic where everything inside the cauldron, you know, living or dead or inanimate gets completely blown to bits or are we going to actually see you know some more you know some more drawn out tactics and some broader some broader plans i guess that's sort of the real question people are asking now that's right it's it's a little bit confusing because this sagecraft that the russians are using at this point it's very slow paced you know you could say they're trying to preserve artillery munitions bombs as well as technology and most importantly people human lives of the russian soldiers serving it sure it does come it does come at a price because of course time is lost and the russian economy is straining under sanctions and is reformatting itself in real time so the russian economy the future is not really set in stone you know the the trade with india china and all these other BRICS nations i mean all the sanctions from europe and and america are actually pressuring the russian economy quite hard at this point a lot of internal changes are taking place so there is a risk in if this war you know is prolonged and at this point it's the war is already longer than the russo-japanese war and the crimean war and will be probably longer than both of those combined in the end probably may go a, a lot you know well over three years but definitely in the, in the into the future what will we see especially in the donetsk oblast because this is the reconquest of you know russian traditional territory especially constitutional territory such as the oblast of donetsk is probably the number one priority even before any sort of peace trade is assigned so what kind of cities do we see in donetsk as the next targets we see kramatorsk which is quite a large city uh, in donetsk it's from what we've heard kramatorsk despite having all these classical buildings and old aristocratic noble estates on its outskirts like beautiful buildings they look like you know 1700s architecture like you know like the white house those sort of columns they look really beautiful and great i mean if Kram Matorsk is destroyed like Bakhmut. I mean, good lord. It's the population is 150,000. You have other cities, the famous Slavyansk, which Strelkov and his early uh, volunteers held from Donetsk and Lugansk early in 2014, the famous city of Slavyansk. Population roughly over 100,000, but probably a lot less at this point. And the other city of Izium that the Russians left earlier in 2022 when that big retreat was organized in September of that year. And Slavyansk, uh, Izium that is, only has about 40, 44, maybe less people now, maybe maybe 30,000. So 
How will Kramatorsk and Slavyansk be taken, right? So these are big cities. Will they be surrounded and just mauled, right? As you said, will the cauldron be boiled? These are really prospective and speculative opinions we have. I'm personally not a fan of this sort of siegecraft because it, the siegecraft, notice, it doesn't come from a full surround. Mariupol is probably the most successful Russian siege because the, the enemy was completely surrounded and they were entrenched in the Azov-style, really unusual sort of factory, which was a really deep sort of dungeon and fortress, which was actually really hard to take. So they were bombing them for quite some time. But Bakhmut, Avdiivka, well, I don't know. Not really. It's not like the cauldrons we saw in World War II, which essentially the sieges that took place in World War II were exactly on the same landscape as where they're happening now. You look at the cauldrons formed by the Soviet, by the Red Army, or by the Third Reich. They're pretty instrumental in sort of showing you what's possible and how you can actually organize your forces on this landscape and with new technology even more so with planes more advanced drones you know mine sweeping technologies things like that so looking going forward as russia takes back the entire donetsk oblast the main question will be will alexander sirsky and vladimir zelensky will they actually fight to the last ukrainian in these territories or will they actually perhaps retreat go back to Dnipropetrovsk, go back to zaporozhia actually allow the Russians to take back the territory which you know was essentially Russian from the beginning from 2014 the entire oblast supported the Russian side and the only reason these towns and cities are now under Ukrainian occupation is because the Ukrainians literally sent the Donbass battalion which is not a actually volunteer battalion it's a neo-nazi battalion Idar Kraken Tornado Azov battalion forces like these to purge them of any pro-Russian forces into 2014 and 2015. So these areas were pro-Russian to begin with. They're only, they're literally under occupation at the moment. So again, will Zelensky and Sierski hold them? I'm not sure. My hope is not because at this point we do need some, a few months of reprieve and some months of peace, but will the Russians agree to this with, without actually retaking back their constitutional territory? I don't think so. The hope on the cauldrons, of course, is that in theory, once Russia has demilitarized Ukraine enough in these series of cauldrons, they would be able to hopefully take more sweeping, broader military measures across the front lines in the ways that the Ukrainians had envisioned, you know, their Kharkov counteroffensive, but not take the massive losses that the Ukrainians took, for example, in that, you know, basically demilitarize them enough to where the Ukrainians won't be able to, you know, do a tactical retreat and then, you know, massively destroy the Russian advance, which is what the Russians were able to do to the Ukrainian army on their few advances that they've been able to achieve. But in general, Ukraine is still striking, you know, into pre-war Russia, you know, Belgorod and these other places are being hit. Of course, Donetsk has still been hit. It has been dying down now that they've had to refocus on actually defending Avdivka city center and whatnot. But, you know, the war is raging on and it appears that the Russians are very much intent on not giving up any of the territory. And again, I think everybody that's commenting has safely stated that, you know, minimum Crimea plus the four oblasts in their entirety will be gotten by Russia. But that, we know that's not the World War Now playbook and how we envision or would like to see things going, both for the sake of long-term peace and just for the geostrategic world order in general. But yeah, Dimitri, before we talk about Navalny, I guess we should briefly mention, of course, the Belgorod and these other situations where civilians have are still dying. And I don't really know the, I don't know what Ukraine gets out of doing this, but they seem to see some value in it. Yeah, so Belgorod, as we know, is the sister city of Kharkov. It's only, what, 20, maybe 30 kilometers away, just across from Kharkov, over the, over the border in the Russian Federation. 
And Belgorod historically has just been one of those towns where like the Bishop of Belgorod, the Bishop of Kharkov, they would usually co-serve during services. It's it's a very friendly, both cities are essentially Russian imperial cities, which go back and have a long history together. But at this point, bombing from the Kharkov front, you know, these bombs and missiles are flying well over the border. The Russians aren't able to stop them, unfortunately, and these missiles are hitting civilian targets, which is making this even more outrageous. At this point, the civilian target in the middle of February now has hit a shopping center, killing seven people, including a one-year-old baby girl, unfortunately, who was probably just shopping with her parents, you know, in a, in a pram, and the bombs hit the shopping center, causing just the debris damage as well as the explosion itself, I think, killed a few of these people. So we have... We have real casualties. The you know, Archbishop John of Belgorod has his work cut out for him. Uh, you know, the, the priest, the clergyman of the of the city, uh, consoling all the families of their loss. And actually, you know, the funerals probably taking place. The hospitals, the emergency departments of Belgorod city are busy. Everyone is looking out for one another. I mean, it's bringing the community of Russians and Orthodox Christians closer. But again, it's they're coming closer over tragedy, which is very unfortunate. And yeah, it just continues this narrative that Ukraine has taken on this, this put on this mask of a terrorist state, and it continues to hold to that image, of course, without any sort of criticism from Western mainstream media sources. But we, of course, report the news as it is. And if any side in this conflict would cause some outrageous criminal strikes such as this, we would report upon it. And in this case, unfortunately, it's only Ukraine that seems to be explicitly hitting civilian targets, literally. The market in Donetsk a couple of weeks ago, this time a shopping center in Belgorod, which Belgorod doesn't even have Russian forces stationed in the city itself. It's not, yes, it's on the front lines, but the Russian forces aren't stationed there. So again, what this achieves, I'm not sure, besides demoralization. And of course, naturally, for the West, this is just not really a story they're going to cover. But the one story the West has begun speaking about this week is naturally not terrorism, but the death of the Russian oppositionary leader, Alexei Navalny, in the Arctic, I think the Polar Wolf Prison on the north, on the uh, on the Arctic Circle, up north in Russia, in prison number three, Alexei Navalny, 47 years of age, oppositionary politician in Russia, political commentator, a really popular YouTuber. He has been in prison for a few years for corruption as well as anti, anti-Russian propaganda. For about his sentence was about 19 years at this point, but he was just in his third year of, of his sentence. And in this prison, he suddenly fell down while taking a walk outside doing his exercise at 47 and suddenly just died, passed out. The first initial reports that we're getting, because this story is less than 24 hours old now, the death of Navalny is reported to be due to a blood clot. So he essentially somehow received a blood clot at, you know, it's, it's a bit unusual receiving blood clots at under 50 years of age, which makes myself and Conrad you know, suspect the potential vaccine involvement because we know that Navalny was vaccinated. So potentially that could have caused it. But nevertheless, this death has caused a lot of outrage in Western media sources, which have used the death of Navalny, who, yes, he was a baptized Orthodox Christian. As far as we know, we don't know how practicing he was or he didn't speak much about Orthodox Christianity, but he definitely was a liberal and someone who wanted uh, you know, to change Russia into a more westernized liberal country with everything that comes out of that. So yeah, naturally, Navalny's policies were never put into play and put into force, but the things he spoke about, you know, the changes he wanted to enact upon Russia were probably going to lead to something negative in the long term. Nevertheless, it's, we're not going to gloat over this man's death because, again, possibly he is baptized. His soul at the moment is you know, traversing through the toll houses, so we can't really claim that you know he's going to hell or, or heaven or whatnot there's no it's not for us to comment we just hope that 
you know, people who really cared about him do pray for him. But but he's a good example, right, Conrad, I think, of a Faustian type figure, a man who gave really good speeches, was a good speaker, was popular, had charisma, similar maybe to like a Russian, maybe an older version of like a Nicholas Fuentes, made, you know, popular, trendy YouTube videos, gave presentations, but eventually turned literally to the dark side, started working with really weird liberal figures like, you know, Maxim Katz and all these weird uh, people out of Israel, Tel Aviv, liberal figures um, in Russia itself, like uh, Vladimir Milov. A lot of these uh, even pro-feminists started siding with him as well as the LGBT crowd. There was a point in Navalny's life around 2014 where he kind of abandoned his centrist positions and became a lot more center-left. And at that point, I think this is where a lot of Christian people completely went against him and really just sided with uh, Vladimir Putin as well as Putin's, well, center-right reasonable policies as opposed to Navalny's oppositionary moves. Well, you know, what can we say about Alexei Navalny? I think his probably his biggest achievements as an oppositionary leader were probably his little fancy YouTube videos that he kept making about exposing so-called corruption in Russia. I can't really comment on the veracity of those corruption videos. You know, they are pretty in-depth and, you know, you just have to watch them kind of on the facts and see what takes place. The only I guess the real benefit I got out of the videos themselves, Conrad, is the videos expose certain Russian politicians, bureaucrats, and oligarchs. But what was curious is not the actual the money that was stolen or the, the in-depth corruption details, but the actual origin of the oligarchs. We found out very interesting details from those videos, for example. Well, the oligarch turns out he was connected, you know, to some Israeli Israeli banker or Israeli businessman, or he had an Israeli passport. Or perhaps that this Russian bureaucrat was married to a Jewish woman. And the Jewish woman, you know, her, her their children were living in Israel and, you know, going to a private school somewhere. You just find out these curious details and connections which help you paint a better picture of exactly who came to power in Russia in the nineteen nineties and continued to hold on to that power even through the Putin years. And Navalny slightly exposed that without emphasizing that you know, that, shall we say, Talmudic factor. And so just as an exposition, essentially these Wikipedia page type videos, which don't really go into depth on any of these questions, but it was a good dive for me. It was a good sort of, these hyperlinks were included in the videos, which I ended up going down and I personally found them somewhat fruitful. But again, very biased, a very liberal man. And certainly if Navalny, as, I, you know, as we posted in our Telegram chat, if Navalny was alive in 1917 or 1905 and actively participated in the Russian revolutions against Tsar Nicholas II, he would have definitely not been a monarchist. He would have sided with the Freemasons, with the provisional government, maybe even with Lenin and Trotsky and those people. This is who Navalny was. We can't deny that. He wasn't a Russian Orthodox patriot. He was a Russian who betrayed the Russian ideas of the Third Rome, and even the Russian ideas of just general Christian decency and sided with the enemies of Christian civilization. And this is a story of a guy who essentially went down the wrong path and used his talents for the wrong things and eventually passed away under very mysterious circumstances, away from his family, away probably from the church as well. And it's just a story of caution. It's like, do not side of these people. They will betray you and then they will use your image. They will use your corpse like, necro like the necromancers they are as a political tool, like all these presidents and premiers are using now around the world in order to push further leftist degenerate policies. They don't care about Navalny's soul as it's like passing through the afterlife now. They do not care about him. They don't care about his family. They use him as a tool and then they discard him as a corpse. That's, I think, the the moral of the story here it's a le it's a lesson in caution no matter how talented or how rich or influential you are these forces of darkness in the world these globalists will utilize you and then they will throw you away to the demons which they have prepared for you
Yeah, we're going to see a lot of speculation on this and a lot of pontificating, of course, right when he died. World leaders across the EU, across, of course, the US, Canada, everybody came out and were like talking about how Putin killed Navalny. Personally, I'm willing to just, you know, close the binder, chalk this up to a vaccine death and call it a day. I don't find it the most, you know, I'm, you know, me and Dimitri love talking about the Russian world. I don't think we consider this the most interesting story to talk about when it comes to Russia as far as, you know, actually getting deep into the nitty gritty. But because everyone's going to talk about it, we got to, of course, give our ideas on who did it. And as far as I'm aware, I mean, look, of course, if it was some kind of long poisoning process, like as he had possibly accused the Russian government of doing from, like Dimitri hinted at, some kind of, you know, maybe Russian deep state people in the judiciary that are kind of directing things a certain way with an unknown level of Putin's knowledge and involvement. Even that, I think, is somewhat unlikely in this situation. We know, of course, that the real charges and the accusations behind Navalny evidence-wise, being, you know, his lawyer, his co-worker meeting with an agent of MI6, and they are talking about effectively, you know, funding a color revolution-style movement and underground in the Russian Federation, which of course is a serious crime. But it seems to me that with him being sentenced and him kind of having been silenced for so long and really kind of, you know, just becoming this person that's understood to be in prison, and that's kind of just where he's going to be, that the powers that be, especially now that you know, with Sierski now in charge and the whole Zeluzhny-Zelensky collapse and now, you know, the real struggle in the U.S. to even secure any kind of Ukraine funding. It seems that they need to gin up some more public disdain for Putin, especially after the Tucker Carlson interview where Putin was, you know, erudite, especially when compared to Biden's, you know, senility. So I think they really were like, all right, let's do something big. This Navalny guy's kind of run his purpose, like Dimitri said, and they, you know, they handed him over to the demons quite literally because he had he had served his purpose and now we're we're seeing a whole new shift in the news cycle because of that and that's what they love to do you know they they have all their tentacles out so that when they can cut one off it'll be a news story in and of itself which seems to be what they've done here of course Dimitri I'd want to hear any pontifications you have both on you know Navalny's initial imprisonment and of course his assassination but it's one of those things that is more relevant because of the impending Russian elections which are of course going to be one of the main rhetorical talking points when it comes to, you know, the coverage of this in the Western media. You're absolutely right. And I think if we all kind of self-reflect on exactly who benefits, for example, like, so we reflect on the facts, that is, who are the beneficiaries of this killing, this murder, or this accidental death? And the beneficiaries are clearly Western powers. Putin and his United Russia Party don't benefit at all. And the other beneficiaries are, of course, and this is where the Kremlin deep state comes in, because, of course, the Kremlin doesn't just have one center of power. Yes, sure, Putin is the central figure, but there are other branches, as we've seen, those responsible for Prigozhin and Colonel Dmitry Utkin's passing and there the explosion in that plane. That was certainly no freaking accident. There was no cocaine-tripped grenade-fetching operation, right, in the sky. That was clearly... An internal operation of some sort. I, I'm still stand, kind of standing on that. But the question is, who is behind all of this? And certainly Russia does have its oligarchs still. And I think all these oligarchs and as well as some of these bureaucrats who may be internally even anti-Putin, they're anti-SMO. They don't like this idea of the Russian world. They don't like, I mean, this is the fifth column, which Alexander Dugin speaks about. The fifth column within Russia are not the libtards. The fifth column is these bureaucrats who care about money. Maybe they're a bit light on liberalism, but all they want is you know, power and wealth for themselves and not exactly for the people. They don't like this Putin turn to war, this Putin's pivot to orthodoxy where he begins talking about, you know, Russia's history and all of that. That doesn't entertain them because that doesn't actually, a revival of the Russian empire is not on the cards for these people. And these people would kill somebody like Navalny in order to provoke a reaction and, and, and to improve, sort of increase 
anti-Putin sentiment, especially one month, exactly a month out of the Russian election, this takes place and it benefits not Putin, no one. And the other party would benefit, of course, would be any potential successes that Putin does have, because there is always that talk, well, Navalny's in prison for 20 years, for example. Who is more popular than Putin in Russia? No one. But Navalny would probably be on the second or third place. Like definitely a lot more popular than the, the boomer, weird Zyuganov, who is communist and orthodox at the same time and is just a weird political figure, this boomer. The death of Zhirinovsky has left the void. There is really nobody else. And suddenly Navalny, for the liberals at least in Russia and for the left-wingers, does appear as a potential, potential not a replacement for Putin, but you know a potential successor, for like a new Yeltsin. Now that Yel that new Yeltsin project is gone, and whoever removed him is probably, maybe even if he was removed and it was on a blood clot from the vaccine, is probably look eyeing that Putin position because Putin's getting a little bit old and Putin cannot hold power for too long, unfortunately. And the new replacer may not be as orthodox and may not be as based as as we unfortunately would like. So I think it's interesting just to see that. Yes, Conrad, you're right. Could have been an MI6 hit job. Could have been an internal hit job like we've seen with Prigozhin and Utkin. Well, there's a lot of hypotheticals, right, thrown around. But no, what I think what's interesting is that people who say Navalny wasn't relevant and he wasn't really a power figure, I think they're a little bit wrong. In the recent 30 years of Russian history, like the main protests that took took place in Moscow itself and St. Petersburg, and people knew, know this inside of Russia, one of the main protests was actually led by Nemtsov and Navalny in 2011-2013 during the Putin elections when Dmitry Medvedev was transferring power to black to Vladimir Putin during those 2012 elections. And in December, I think it was December 11th, 2011, funny those dates kind of correlate, Navalny actually managed to gather at least 150, perhaps more, as many as 200,000 people in Moscow for a, like a liberal anti-United anti Russia, anti-corruption protest. So he did have that capacity to actually bring a lot of people, similar to how Yeltsin brought people to the massive meetings in the, in the early, you know, when the USSR was falling apart, for example, in 10th of March, 1991, 500,000 people came out to the Manezhnaya Ploshids to support Yeltsin against Mikhail Gorbachev. That's insane. Half a million people. And yeah, sure, you can say, well, in some Middle Eastern country, a million people came out, you know, but this is not a Middle Eastern country. This is a Western, This is, I mean, not a Western, this is a European country. Uh -huh. It's hard to get Europeans on the street in such big numbers. So again, uh, Navalny had, did have that capacity. So somebody, he definitely was one of those like weird Yeltsinite type figures who had the, had the charisma to do so. And now he's gone. So the question is like, who will lead the liberal movement in Russia? It's not yet quite clear. But I think the outcome will probably will probably be more beneficial to Russia. Now people are less confused. Nobody's going to follow him for all the bad or good that he's done to Russia. And definitely his weird liberal democratic views are kind of out of the picture. No one's going to follow the his successes like Maxim Katz. Maxim Katz, sure, he has big YouTube channels with millions of subscribers, but Maxim Katz looks like a typical Bolshevik. Navalny at least looked physically like a Russian. Maxim Katz looks like... Well, he, he looks like a Bolshevik. Like Maxim Katz is basically the guy who the liberal opposition in Russia is going to look to for leadership now. And he, he looks like he's straight out of 1920s Russia, a Czechist who would kill and murder priests and lady. And he looks like a typical Trotsky, Sviridlov type character, if you get what I'm trying to say. But yes, Navalny's death probably one of the biggest news stories of the week. And I think the, the worst thing, Conrad, that comes out of this is the Western reaction and pinning it on Putin, pinning it on Russia, claiming Russia is some sort of unsafe place. The only reason Russia is unsafe in any capacity is because of Ukrainian terrorism. That's what people need to realize. 
is because Ukrainians are actively involved in causing these disruptions. And I think that's that's where this story doesn't really lead anywhere. It's it's a death, uh, an unfortunate accidental death or you know, an intended murder by some sort of power structure, either foreign or domestic. And that's kind of where it stops. Yeah, it's much like the Prigozhin situation. We're probably not going to get much more answers than what we're working with right now here on this initial reaction. So this is what you get. Again, this is one of those stories that we think there are more interesting questions when it comes to political opposition and successors to Putin than, you know, infinitely discussing Navalny like the Western media does. But I think I think you gave the right take, Dimitri. I think we've broken this down. But you talk about, you know, his ability to get people out into the street. When it comes to people in Orthodox countries getting out into the street, that's what we have to talk about next here. Of course, normally we talk about this closer to the end of the show, but we gotta bump it up here to, you know, story number three because it just can't go. It it just can't be ignored at this point, and that is, of course, that as all the headlines are now boastfully saying, Greece becomes first Orthodox country to legalize gay marriage, and that's what all the headlines say. It's not just oh, Greece legalizes gay marriage. It's not Greece becomes 16th country in the European Union to legalize gay marriage. No, it's first Orthodox country to legalize gay marriage. So we're going to talk about some of the implications of that. But first, I'll just you know break down the story. Of course, this was. On the night of February 15th, the Greek parliament voted, uh, despite the fierce and persistent resistance from the church and society, to legalize gay marriage and adoption for gay couples. Remember that the church, you know, had been approached by Mitsotakis, you know, the quote-unquote center-right prime minister that pushed this through to, you know, for them to, you know, not protest, to agree to a bill that would stop the adoption by gay couples, but allow the, you know, gay civil unions or whatever it was that he was proposing to the church. And they, of course rejected it and stayed stalwart, but it seems that because of that, he's like, okay, we'll just go through with the full gay couples thing. But of course, it was 176 out of the 300 members of parliament voted in favor of this, 76 voted against, two abstained, and 46 were not present. Of course, again, we had members of Syriza, which is like literally like the communist remnant left-wing party in Greece that even voted against this. So it really shows you the level of Zog loyalty that uh, New Democracy, you know, again, the quote, center-right, very popular party in Greece has really become just a full-on NATOist, NATOist party. And of course, Prime Minister Kyriakos Mitsotakis tweeted that Greece is proud to become the 16th European Union country to legislate marriage equality. This is a milestone for human rights reflecting today's Greece, a progressive and democratic country passionately committed to European values, he wrote. Of course, a decade ago, Greece had legalized gay civil unions, and this now allows, I mean, I don't even know who would be doing these gay marriages, like weird Protestant sectarians, the weird groups that meet on Mount Olympus and worship Zeus or whatever, are these the people that are going to be conducting these gay marriages? Of course, we all know that the church from the Holy Synod of Greece, you know, the Ecumenical Patriarchate Phanar itself, uh, the Eparchial Council of Crete, and then multiple statements from, from Mount Athos, you know, definitely disavowed this and came out strongly against it. And earlier this week, we saw tens of thousands of people rallying against the bill in Athens. So there has been some resistance, but I think Dimitri and, you know, if people follow me on X or Twitter, they've seen this. This is this is not enough. I hate to say it. Like this is just not even close to enough to stop to prevent this from happening. Like a message needs to be sent here. And you know, don't read into what I'm saying too much here, but at the end of the day, sure, there's a huge diaspora, but there are about 10 million people in Greece. Like, That's right. To me, yeah. it just boggles the mind that, like, is it, can we not get a million, yeah, I mean, Dimitri, tell me, like, can we not get a million Orthodox, can we not get 500,000 Orthodox people in Greece to actually, like, care, like, for a few weeks here to, like, kind of dedicate themselves to nothing more than defeating this? Like, is that not possible for the Orthodox society in Greece right now? Like, what, what's, what are we doing here? 
Well, yeah, and Athens can be considered this European sort of mega city as well, considering, yeah, Greece's population is 10 million. Athens has over 3 million. So that's what, like close to 30% of the of the actual population of all of Greece. So of course, all it would take is 100,000 people for an impact to be felt, to walk out onto the main streets, head to the parliament, head to the various embassies, boycott them, show them that we're not actually... You know, we're not actually going to be puppets of the New World Order, puppets of globalism. This is the message that Archpriest Irinim II needs to give the Archpriest of Athens, uh, Archbishop of Athens, sorry. So, and of course, naturally, as we mentioned plenty of times on Twitter and Telegram, the clergy also need to be involved because, as we know, these things are, it's not a slippery slope fallacy, it's a slippery slope reality. It's already a game plan. This will as it has in most Western countries, will float, will have a flow-on effect, and this will normalize this degeneracy, which uh, naturally we've seen in other Western countries. Eventually, there'll be transgender discussions, uh, euthanasia, which is already taking place in Scandinavian and really developed countries like Canada. And naturally, all this degeneracy will progress, and we're going to be seeing transgender people, things like that. It's going to get worse. The mutations are going to occur before our very eyes and turn this once privileged orthodox country which never felt the sting of communism right which was never under communist occupation one of the beacons of orthodoxy throughout the 20th century i would say right the, the one country which wasn't completely annihilated during world war ii that was orthodox and which wasn't then enslaved by some disgusting ideology but in fact reality and what modern history shows us is that greece was in fact enslaved and yes it's time this is not a time to sit back and talk the only reason me and conrad speaking so much about this because this is all we can do as we do not live in Athens nor Greece itself but you best believe if I was a Greek citizen I would be on the streets I would be with my priest I'll be writing letters to my bishop I'll be calling for action because this is what needs to take place now it's not a matter of holding back and then letting it you know you have to go out with prayer saying the Jesus prayer actually protect your people love your neighbors you have to love is a doing word it's an action word it's not a passive thing uh -huh. it's not an emotion and yet if you, if you love your neighbor you love your family you, you love your grandchildren your children your sisters brothers cousins this bill is one move forward towards the destruction of everything you hold dear especially as Christians so I think as we, we speak all the time about how families are the primary building blocks of society well this is an attack upon family and this is a direct slap in the face to Greek culture, to the brave Hellenes who fought against Turkish Ottoman occupation, which held them down for hundreds of years, you know, and assaulted them. But now is the time to actually show, this is where Greek revolutionaries that, you know, you speak about all the time, the heroes of the 1820s, the heroes of the post-Napoleonic wars, Balkan wars against Turkish Ottoman occupation. This is a time for them to rise up and actually free their country from Mitsotakis, as well as the other heads of the hydra because again it's not just the fault of the greek prime minister it's the fault of this collective bureaucracy which again it's always the freaking bureaucracy which they're getting paid government salaries they they have insane pensions guaranteed these people should not be receiving these absurd pensions once they retire from these stupid jobs where they promote degeneracy and send their country to hell in a handbasket we have to the Greek people really need to do something. And uh, again, the protests are taking place. It's not like, well, we're just speaking to, to avoid here. There are people on the streets now. They're not actually on Twitter. They're not typing weird stuff. They're actually on the streets protecting their country. And I think this is a real call to action because as you're apparently a democracy and you're one of the most ancient democracies on on the planet, on, you know, on Earth, it's time for you to actually act 
and show that democratic spirit in an orthodox light, if that's even possible, right? If an orthodox democracy is even possible, it has to be in Greece, right? When 90 plus percent of the population is Christian, it's time to actually go out there and fight back against the, you know, the onslaught of this degeneracy. Why does democracy always end in like gay sex? I just don't really understand it. Like back in the day, you know, the Greeks, you know, we, everyone makes the jokes about Greeks, you know, like Italians, you know, and, you know, Greeks invented sex, Italians invented, you know, doing it with women, you know, we hear all these sorts of types of jokes. And, you know, because that has to do with, you know, there was institutionalized, you know, in certain levels, pederasty that did, you know, exist in the Greek times. It doesn't mean that all the Greeks were gay. I agree. That's, that's a huge myth that this idea that, quote unquote, homosexuality was present in ancient Greece in any kind of acceptable fashion. But we know there was some, you know, sussy pagan things going on before Christendom came in there. And now what, we've had Greek democracy for what, like less than a hundred years, like depending on where you want to start the the counting point with the Greek revolution and with the junta and everything like that. But again, it's been far less of a time than the Roman Empire, the Byzantine Empire, whatever you want to call you know, Rome's manifestation in Greece and in the Eastern Mediterranean, there was never this, you know, gay sex era. But, you know, here we are just a few decades into Greek democracy part two, and we're legalizing sodomite marriage. And again, I, I'm fathers of the church, you know, forgive me if we're being a little crass and graphic here, but we have these Greeks online, these diasporoids, and even some people in Greece itself that are, you know, really, really busy tweeting and posting online in the English language to people expressing their frustration with this, like, I'm sorry, I don't really care what you have to say to me. Why aren't you doing something about it now in your community? Whether that's writing a letter, or whether that's going to a Niki, a victory party rally, whether that's going and speaking to someone like Metropolitan Theophytos and asking him what somebody like you should do. Again, like you say, your voice means a lot. If you're a Greek Orthodox person, you have the power. You have a lot of power. You are an agent. You have will. You have agency. You are made in the image of God yourself. You're one of 10 million. I'm here in America, one of like 400 million. You can do something about this. But so many people just aren't because it's not happening because the bill passed and there's no burning. There's no, why isn't this in the news? Why isn't Athens, you know, the number one news story right now because of the reaction of Orthodox Christians? I'm sorry. You have faggots pissing and all over the, the fronts of beautiful churches in Athens and the most we can get are boomers you know posting to people you know converts like you know you really can't talk to Greeks like this like what what are you, what are you a Jewish like I, I forgot the Greek ethnicity portion of I forgot that we couldn't criticize you know the Greek ethnicity I, you know I didn't realize that was part of you know the church the body of Christ itself which really just obnoxious behavior and again I know not all Greek our Greeks are like that there are some Greeks that are you know that are doing doing the Lord's work and of course elder Ephrem of Arizona we know that before he passed away, he said that Greece has turned its back on Christ and is sleeping in its own muck. And you can't call him a Western convertodox, you know what I mean? Somebody that, you know, restored three plus monasteries on Athos and started 20 plus monasteries around the United States, Canada, and Europe. You know, that's a, he's got his Greek bona fides. And of course, I'm sure Metropolitan Neophytos will have some words on this, you know, be sure to follow us on the socials to keep up with that. But, you know, many Greeks are not happy and we hope that, you know, the Greeks that, would rather counter signal on Twitter that they can join the join the real fight and that something can be done about this. Of course, I've I don't know if we've ever seen any country successfully rescind gay marriage. I think there may be some small country where something like that happened, but every time this gets in, you know, it seems like it's there to stay. But again, it is a fairly modern phenomenon. It's only it's, I don't think it's been 20 years in any country since it's been legal. So we're all we're all here we're here on the frontier of demonic progressivism and i doubt the greeks will be the first but i hope somebody whether it's the americans whether it's someone in europe it could be the greeks maybe will be the first ones to roll back gay marriage which you know 
that's a good achievement to make up for being the first Orthodox country to do this, because that's the real, the real scummy and horrible implication, and why I can confidently say that I'm not in the wrong telling Greeks to, you know, pull their pants up and get out there and do something for the sake of all of us, because this sets such a horrible precedent. There's huge lobbies for this in Cyprus, in Romania, in Georgia. And Dimitri, I know you posted that you think Georgia's next. I have to disagree a little bit. I think Cyprus is definitely next. I think that's almost indisputable considering it's basically Greece. Like it's they're basically the same country. They just happen to not be the same country because of twentieth century libtard norms plus, you know, Turkish invasion. But Cyprus and then I think even Romania would probably go before Georgia because there's just not that many homos in Georgia at the end of the day. So I don't know where they'd get the people to protest for it, but I'd love your I'd love to hear your thoughts. No, I, I, I do agree. Yes, Romania does have that European Union, NATO-esque, and also anti-Soviet, which means also anti-conservative in the modern sense. Being, being anti-Soviet almost always means anti-conservative in this like Eastern European sense. It's a very bizarre sort of quite a toxic phenomenon we keep seeing. But yeah, I think the only reason I mentioned Georgia was because they are actually this the politicians in georgia are actively discussing it so the liberal politicians as well as some of the center politicians are like well we're willing to make some compromises so yes the georgian population is incredibly conservative perhaps more so per capita than that of greece and that's probably what will hold back the the line but it would be interesting to see the fallout from this greece situation because frankly i see a lot of people saying well it's not the population it's the it's the politicians but i'm sorry are you going to let them get away with it are you because well, you're in a representative democracy, aren't you? Like, you've elected these people. Are they going to win elections? Is the next election going to be 80% for, like, the NACA party, for example? Is that what's going to happen? I, I doubt that very much. I think, naturally, it's if people are inactive, we've seen this in, during historical events, the most obvious one is the, the greatest fall of an Orthodox country we've seen in the history of mankind, even more so than the unit fall of the Byzantine Empire or the Eastern Roman Empire because that at least did not have the crazy population, was when the Russian Empire sat back and watched their country turn liberal during the February Revolution, that Tsar was imprisoned, and then they allowed the Bolsheviks to take over, and the civil war didn't begin, say, in the middle of 1917, and only started in 1918, and so forth and so on. The Russians sat back and let all of that take place. The lukewarmness that abounded in the Russian Empire as it fell apart was so overwhelming that well, we live out the results of those, like we live out the aftershocks of that massive lukewarmish and sinful earthquake to this day. And here in Greece, that's why you know, there is unfortunately analogies which we can make historically where people just sit back, they watch their TV, they watch their Greek national news and they complain. They say, well, you know what, mom, this sucks. You know what, wife, oh, this, this is so bad. These politicians, all they do is talk. But I'm sorry, but your children will be taught, taught about gay marriage in a few years when they grow up, your grandchildren as well. It's time to actually let your voice out, actually act politically. You know, it's like that famous quote from a Greek politician, I think it was Pericles. You may not care about politics, but politics will care about you. This, You may not be in... You may be a completely apolitical person, but if you live in a city, if you don't live in a monastery or on a rural farm somewhere, on a homestead, and you're kind of completely disconnected from technology, this will affect you, especially if you live in suburban Greece, which is tied to the European Union by this umbilical Talmudic banking cord. And of course, the whole entire country is economically and financially enslaved. You have nothing to lose but your honor. So I think just keep that in mind. If you're a Greek citizen, now's the time to act. It's time to put the pressure on these politicians. It's time to have this bill rescinded and have this law completely denounced and trotted upon. I mean, look, the Greeks, 
people in Greece that are woke on politics and this kind of thing, I know there are many of them, you have a chance to finally actually maybe make a difference in the EU conversation. Like if you dramatically pushed back on this and, you know, made some things burn and made some people really hurt and made noise, the EU would be forced to address the fact that, man, we've got these countries that we want to bring in that want to do all of this. And that would delegitimize the institution on a broader spectrum and increase, again, your freedom from, from total debt slavery. And you'd be able to, again, perhaps restructure around a more actually Greek and orthodox understanding of, of governance, whatever that may look like. Again, we've seen juntas, we've seen different versions of democracy, we've seen attempts at restored monarchies, and of course we have the imperial legacy. And again, Mount Athos exists. Mount Athos, is, again, if you want to be really, really technical, in theory, the Byzantine Empire still exists on Mount Athos based on, on law and custom and whatnot from a, from a religious governance perspective. But again, this is just not, not good. Pray for Greece, pray for the people there. We're going to be keeping everybody posted on it, but Greeks, the ball is in your court. I want to see some serious, you know, I want to see some serious work being put in because we do it. You know, when when Metropolitan Neophytos was on the ballot, I was calling every Greek person I could get a number that had anything to do with Cyprus to get to get him in there. When it comes to El Pitoforos, you know, I make I get people to write letters. I I do what I can. So if you're here in America, you can write to El Pitoforos. I want you to be writing to the Synod, complaining about El Pitoforos because he enabled this. Him. And his gay baptisms and him talking about, I mean, him recently talking about all this progressive gay nonsense in these recent statements where he's totally just throwing to the wind the fact that he, in theory, you know, revoked his previous support for the gay, the baptism of, you know, the gay adoptees and whatnot. He is one of the main reasons that this was kind of allowed in the Greek political world because he created that image and that perception. So he's a real problem in this. And of course, we see, you know, the EP about to meet with Pompeo, they've invited him to be one of their speakers at this, all these Archon St. Andrew events they have about religious freedom and whatnot. And Pompeo's the guy that, you know, orchestrated the OCU. He's the guy that paid off, you know, the $6 million to the Ecumenical Patriarchate, as Abbot Trifon, you know, told us about. He's the guy that helped on the ground design the whole OCU Poopmenko project. And and we, in the midst of all of that, we've seen some of the harshest persecution of, of churches and lay people and worshipers and Christianity since the Bolshevik times. And what does the EP do? You know, they don't even try to save face and just kind of ignore it, not say anything. Nope, they're inviting Pompeo right back. They're concelebrating with Jumenko. They're trying to make the Macedonian Orthodox Church concelebrate with Jumenko. So the rot really goes down to the core. And frankly, we can't act as if there's not a Jewish element here. I mean, look, El Pitoforos, right after supposedly disavowing his previous gay actions, immediately goes to the Holocaust Museum in Thessaloniki. And of course, we see Mitsotakis here. He does all sorts of same kinds of things. It's always you know, right after he goes to Athos or something or talks about something orthodox, he immediately goes and talks to the Greek Jewish community or lights a menorah or whatever. He's got a lot of yarmulke kippah photos. You know, of course, he is a supporter of Israel, despite most Greek people not actually being political supporters of Israel, even with the obvious Turkish Islamic, you know, thing going on there. Of course, Greece has a higher than normal amount of military weapons from the United States with their large amounts of planes that they use to bolster their, you know, defense against perceived Turkish aggression. And they have, of course, been sending weapons to Ukraine, which is is another way that they've betrayed the Orthodox world. And if they don't wise up on this, they will have betrayed the Orthodox world once again. And I think the Nikia party, we really do want to see them surge, but I think you're right, Dimitri. In my mind, anything short of, you know, them getting at least 50 seats here in this next election would be, you know, would be an admission, basically, that you're laying down on this one from the Greek people. And that would be great if that happened, but, you know, I'm skeptical. Yeah, you know, before we move on to other Anatolian politicians, right, such as Pashinyan and discuss the whole Azerbaijani-Armenian issue, I think it's just important to note that, yes, the pressure is on the Greek people to make change, and 
the pressure is on because Greece has always remained this example for, you know, so-called docs that they keep talking about online. Greece is this country which had this tradition of Christianity that lived through Turkish occupation, lived through World War II, lived through World War One, was an active participant throughout world history from the time of the apostles. You mentioned Thessaloniki, Saint Demetrius, instead of visiting all these holy sites, Elpidophorus, who is a example, one of the richest bishops outside of Greece and outside of you know, Turkey proper, the most richest diaspora archbishop, visits, visits the Holocaust Museum right after receiving all this sanctity and grace from Mount Athos. I mean, what is actually happening? I know this is an old story, but it's a great pinpoint example of what these people are thinking about. And it's not Christ. It's not. It's definitely not the future of orthodoxy in their particular lands. It's about virtue signaling and about actually appealing to these trendies online, which Alex Jones spoke about all those years ago. It's it's literally how trendy can we become? What kind of laws can we allow to pass? And yes, Greece does have, in terms of density, right? Thessaloniki has so many monasteries. Athens is surrounded on the outskirts by these monasteries, parishes. I think Greece has something like 300 plus Orthodox Christian monasteries. Uh, and this is for men and women. We could have these nuns, these monks need to understand what's happening. They need to ask permission from their hieromonks, from the Archimandrites. They need to go out and actually, as well, in, in, in be involved in this protest movement. Because again, it's it's not a protest. It's not a political action. It's a societal. It's a it's a societal health act here. It's a you're saving your fellow Christians from being subjugated further to to the whims of the Antichrist and to his ideology. Because this is exactly the sort of degeneracy that the future globalist regime will pull push across all the nations. But yeah, it's just again a great shame. Especially a shame if this goes ahead. If we speak about this next week and nothing has changed. And there is no, and the headline isn't Greece is the first Orthodox Christian country to adopt gay marriage. But if the headline is massive protests in Greece, riots, people are pushing back, the laws, and the politicians are panicking, that should be the headline. I'm not saying, I'm not calling anyone to anything. I'm just saying that should be the headline in Western media and even in alternative media sources. And I, I pray that we see something like that. I pray that we see action and bravery because, again, uh, we shouldn't allow this to. You know, to go to go ahead. This would be one of the most negative stories of this year, and we're only two months into 2024. Uh, you know, this is just before we speak about Pashinyan and the weird, the different type of Orthodox. So these are the the other type of Orthodox Christians who have been doing again bizarre stuff in Anatolia, which is also like a former member of the Byzantine Empire. It's just all over the former Byzantine Empire, like the territory. There's all kinds of weird cringe happening. Palestine, Greece, Anatolia, like. It's, it's a civilizational crisis here. This land is occupied by, I don't, I'm not saying different ethnicities and that's bad, but literally by people whose ideology does not align with the once great nation that existed here. Well, you know, they say the light is always darkest before the dawn. So, you know, maybe it's about to come back in a major way that nobody expected. You know, that's just me injecting a white pill. Of course, we have to pray for Greece. And you say the monks and nuns getting out there. Yeah, it's not political. That's a, you know, a medicinal act of healing, you know, from the church, you know, the hospitaliers of the church onto, you know, the nation and the people. So, you know, they shouldn't be afraid. This should be a moment for boldness. But moving into the Armenia-Azerbaijan question, not too many details per se, but we're seeing a lot of news from all over the place. The Azeri sources are denying that they're planning to imminently invade Iran, but Russian sources are saying that there are plans and that it's being moved forward very quickly for total Azerbaijani invasion of Armenia and a potential I mean, they might get the entire panhandle. Of course, there's talk of the Zangazur corridor where they want to connect to their exclave that would connect them directly to Turkey. And Pashinyan has just been 
fully betraying Russia. He's meeting with Albin Kurti, the prime minister of Kosovo. He is meeting with the you know head of MI6, Richard Moore. These are the characters that he's meeting with, I guess, in some kind of hope to stave off the Azeris. I don't know why you meet with MI6 to stave off the Azeris, considering that the Azeris are the number one energy supplier of Israel, and they love each other, and Aliyev is probably a Jew. But, you know, Pashinyan's like, yeah, let's just destroy the CSTO and ally ourselves with the West, who totally care about defending us, a Christian nation, against, you know, a Jewish-Turkic alliance. That's totally how politics works. And, of course, I don't know how much Pashinyan has been working with his Iranian allies. Of course, Iran just hates Azerbaijan so much that they're willing to stick by Armenia. But uh, the Armenian-Iranian ambassador, Meti Sobani, who is, you know, Iran's man in Stepanakert, he says that, rather, he reaffirmed Iran's stance on the Zangazir corridor, emphasizing that the Islamic Republic insists on respecting the territorial integrity of Armenia. Obviously, he they would view any kind of Azerbaijani aggression as something that they would want to respond to militarily. But perhaps Azerbaijan sees Iran so tied up, you know, in supporting the axis of resistance against Israel. They're like, you know what? They probably won't do anything against Armenia here. So it really shows you, you know, it is not worth sogging out. Your country will lose territory. You know, your people will be forced to retreat into a deeper and deeper landlocked little ethnic enclave that, again, people talk about the Armenian genocide. Is this going to be, you know, a continuation of that, you know, of that assault on one of the oldest Christian peoples? You know, maybe. And perhaps the Armenian people need to return to true orthodoxy and, you know, accept Chalcedon and, you know, begin to canonize saints again. Of course, there are the Coptic martyrs and they have a few others. But generally, the past few centuries, they have not been producing, you know, the level of saints that the Ecumenical Patriarchate, the Moscow Patriarchate, Jerusalem Patriarchate, even some of any of these Orthodox churches have have produced. So I think, you know, for the Armenians, it may be time to to come home to Orthodoxy. Yeah, you know, sometimes the wake up call is is a tough one, like like what's happening in Greece today. And even well, the greatest example in modern history would be Ukraine, which fell into even worse muck than Greece recently and just you know fell headfirst into the pigsty and became involved in it, all the corruption, all the degeneracy that took place in Ukraine on a lay as well as on a clerical level. The the Ukrainian Orthodox Church, or sort of not not the church structure itself, but the seminaries, they produce such horrid clergymen. I mean, the worst clergymen of the Russian Orthodox Church came out of Ukraine, unfortunately. And it's I'm not sure whose fault it was. Even people said, well, the, the Kiev Theological Seminary, like something's wrong, something's happening. Unfortunately, the fruits of that weird separatist slash liberal environment in Ukraine was was perhaps what caused these various schisms because these the people going into these schisms are people who graduated from seminaries from universities these are people with degrees who have turned turned their back on orthodox christianity and speaking about armenia this is like this country itself at this point under pashinyan's leadership somehow he's despite losing two wars in recent history to Azerbaijan, his retained power, which shows this man is definitely a cunning and adequate politician. And his sort of rivalry with Aliyev is very interesting because Aliyev and Aliyev, his father, that entire Aliyev clan is definitely one which, uh, you know, we call them Gorne Yevrei, which means essentially probably they come from Mountain Jew stock in the Transcaucus region. Uh, they definitely uh, descendants of some ancient Khazarian uh, line. And most likely the reason why he's given all this authority over Azerbaijan and this Turkic people is to control those Caspian Sea oil and gas reserves, which is so important. The Rothschild family famously throughout the Russian Empire was always trying to oh. obtain 
you know this this North Iranian Northern Iranian Caspian Sea deposits, which unfortunately couldn't do because the Russian emperors were always putting various sanctions and always preventing Rothschilds-run businesses from actually taking these areas and utilizing them. But finally, Azerbaijan and wait. Before we get into that, the Rothschilds Zionist connection, right? So it all comes together in this mosaic once you look into the, these various historical sources. And of course, who does Azerbaijan support as soon as it defeats Armenia in this recent war? Israel. It completely doesn't. It's the only Muslim majority country, I would say. Well, in the vicinity, you can say, in the Middle East, that completely sides of Israel to the point where they send them weapons, resources, gas, oil. They just give Israel whatever it asks for. And it's like, well, who's behind this? Well, it's probably because is Azerbaijan is run by a clan of these masquerading mountain people. Okay, And I'm not talking about Chechens or Dagestanis here or even Georgians. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's this. It's, a, it's an old story. And what, yes, pa and what does Pashinyan do? Pashinyan goes and meets with... Albin Kurti in Kosovo, the only other Muslim majority, quote unquote, country. It's not a real country, but you know, territory that also supports Israel. So it's like, bro, you're not. Bro doesn't understand politics. He doesn't. It's it's weird. It's almost like he maybe gets domestic policies in Armenia. He knows how to hold on to power by controlling all these various like checkerboard pieces. But when the game evolves into chess on the foreign on the diplomacy, and he just loses outright. Erdogan doesn't like him. Aliyev doesn't like him. None of his neighbors like him. Even you know, we speak about the Christianity of Armenia. Well, Armenia's closest Christian neighbor who is it? Georgia. And what do Georgians think of Armenians? I'm not even going to answer that question because it's probably not PG at all. And you know, we're not going to go into all these like racist remarks. But Armenia's closest neighbor doesn't think too much, and historically hasn't fought too much of them. And unfortunately, Pashinyan, the, his behavior, his meetings with Zelensky, meetings with Zelensky is where Pashinyan's wife goes and meets with Mrs. Zelensky and all this weird stuff in Kiev. And they talk about stolen Mariupol kids. And there's all this, I mean, Zelensky's wife is probably part of some larger pedophile scandal, but that's a bit of a different story that we'll need to look into. But it's just bizarre virtue signaling on a global end. And now, of course, as four Armenian soldiers are killed on the border of Azerbaijan and Armenia, near Nagorno-Karabakh, suddenly he says, Azerbaijan is planning a full-scale war, and it's like, well, mm. is this the is this this is not World War Three? It's Azerbaijan versus Armenia, part three, and it's part of the larger puzzle that I guess World War Three will be conceived of. But yes, again, destabilization in the area, and he is showing himself as you know, Pashinyan is presenting himself, Conrad, as this figure who is willing actually to send his country into war again in order to maybe like Zelensky in a very Zelensky type fashion hold on to power because the next Armenian elections probably won't go into his favor considering, well, there's like at least 200 people from Nagorno-Karabakh who were forcibly migrated into uh, Armenia proper. Yeah, it's just a really weird situation. I feel sorry for the Armenian people. Yeah, I mean, if there even is an election, if there even is an Armenia when that comes around, you know, we'll all see. But, you know, speaking a little bit south of their real only ally in the region at this point, Iran, they were today, you know, the foreign ministers of Iran and Saudi Arabia were having a very cordial and intense discussion on the Rafah issue, which of course is the biggest development in Israel and Gaza right now. The Israelis have moved forward with their intense striking. We've seen some of the most horrendous footage since the beginning of this, and that's saying something because I think we've all gotten pretty desensitized to some of these videos of the massacred Palestinians. And again, we saw, of course, we covered the St. Porfirio's Church. Many of those massacred children that we've explicitly covered were Orthodox Christians. So be sure to keep the whole situation in your prayers. But, I mean, we saw videos of little girls blown out of buildings with, like, you know, the tendons and intestines spilling out down their legs. I mean, just, just, just horrible, horrible, horrible things. 
And this is the only place that these people have to go. They're not allowed to enter into any of the other countries. We've got millions of people at this point sheltering down here. And Israel's like, nope, we're gonna we're gonna bomb them all. Thirty thousand so far hasn't been enough. We gotta flatten this for you know future Talmudic real estate. And of course, this is driving Saudi Arabia and Iran much closer together, which is probably the main fallout that the U.S. is witnessing. All this work, these decades of of diplomacy to get all these nations to recognize Israel and Saudi Arabia is shrinking further and further away. Of course, you know, maybe if Trump comes back in, they're going to totally reverse that around. But yeah, Iran is, you know, we are all still, again, we're kind of getting a little frustrated with the Muslim world. Like you got to put your money where your mouth is at some point and actually stand up for these people if you're going to make a bunch of noise and, you know, talk about uniting and talking about the Zionist entity and, you know, the great Satan and whatnot. But you know, it seems that Israel is agile enough at this point to attack within Iran. They blew up this big pipeline that Iran claims was fixed within 24 hours, but there was some pretty large explosions. So Mossad is operating freely within Iran from an intelligence and a terrorist perspective. So it seems that, you know, Israel is somewhat managing the situation right now because their their efforts are not being hindered. The Houthi missiles, of course, have increased. They've continued to do what they can. They've had some misfires. They've accidentally hit some other ships, but they are I think trying, frankly, just at this point, they realize anything happening is better than nothing because they realize, you know, maybe we do hit a U.S. ship. Maybe we do trigger them to attack Iran. Then maybe that would trigger Iran to do something and to save the Gazans. You know, I think the Houthis are, they're all in this one and they're one of the only people and groups that are. And of course, we're still watching Egypt. It seems that their foreign minister was, after others had made the announcement, he was like, whoa, whoa, we really don't want to leave this Camp David Accords, you know, don't do that. But again, it is still somewhat on the table. And if the Rafa stuff increases, and if we do see a full-on ground entrance into Rafa, and if they do enter that Philadelphia corridor, then the ball is definitely going to be in Egypt's court. Well, I think Egypt is also uh, a bit on the fence, right? So there's there's a really large financial consideration given to actually remaining on the U.S. on Israel's side, at least on paper. But they still feel, I think, for their Muslim neighbors up up north, and we're seeing uh, Egypt building a walled enclosure in the Sinai Peninsula near Israel for the Rafah refugees. Allegedly, it's a fenced-off area. Essentially, it's one of, like one of those Turkish massive refugee camps that we saw, which were built for the Syrian refugees and. Uh, immigrants who escaped war during the Syrian crisis, right? And Egypt is se- seemingly looking to perhaps build something. I mean, look, it may be out of humanitarian considerations or even monetary considerations. Perhaps the U.S. Is, or Israel is willing to fund, you know, physically transporting these one and a half, if not some some reports. Like the Guardian website is actually giving me numbers as large as two million people in in Rafa at the moment. It's a huge number of people. This is not Nagorno Karabakh with one hundred fifty, two hundred thousand. This is enormous an enormous amount of unfortunately stranded malnutrition and uh, hurt physically and psychologically uh, probably spiritually too people who they just want to transport and literally lead into the desert but it isn't moses that's leading them it's literally israeli and western money so really big questions as to what exactly egypt is doing there in khan yunus continues of course to be staged by israel rafa is not, I think, in, invaded just yet. They've essentially built this, as Al Jazeera explained, this ring of fire around the Rafah camp, or at least from the Israeli end. The the people out of Rafah cannot leave that big refugee camp anymore, this massive uh, tent city. At this point, the Israeli tanks, all of their barrels are pointed at Rafah. They're ready to enter at any moment. And Conrad's right, the bombardment is so intense that we're seeing this crazy footage of mangled bodies. Any bomb that strikes Rafah at this point will inevitably kill civilians. Israel knows this, but they continue to bombard these you know, strategic targets of allegedly Hamas brigades that are hiding. Just as that Rabbi Finkelstein we mentioned, 
last week, the Russian-speaking rabbi in his debate, where he said, well, you know, we're just going to flatten Rafa and the Hamas problem will be dealt with in two weeks. This, this is how these people think. And uh, I'm sure Beryl Lazar, when he visited Israel, he probably had the same ideas. These are weird, Zio, I want to say like Zio fascist sort of talking points. And of course, the rabbis are deeply involved into this. It's not just the secular uh, Zionist type ordeal we're looking at here. But yes, the other big story besides Rafa was the hospital at Khan Yunus that was infiltrated by Israeli forces. Oh. And you, I see these people, right? You see hurt people without missing legs, paralyzed old folks on wheelchairs, on beds, who they're taking out of the hospital. So this is the Nasser Hospital. Really, it's not a giant. It's like in the West, we consider, the, you know, when we think about a hospital, we think of these giant buildings with which can fit tens of thousands of people. But here are these hospitals. They can fit several thousands of people. Anyhow, they are overcrowded to begin with by hurt people, elderly folks. Imagine there's old Palestinians with dementia, with uh cataracts or all these other issues that you get just simply from old ages people giving birth and israel goes in there the tanks drive into the nasser hospital courtyard in khan yunus and then they at gunpoint while you know having shootouts with like hospital staff they escort the people kick them out and send them south to rafa out of khan yunus that's it. people out of, in the hospital thousands of people just kicked i mean this is absurd it's absolutely insane and yeah the footage is horrendous israel continues to act like literally the worst country the most inhumane country we've seen in the 21st century. They are taking that. They're defeating Zelensky in terms of like the, the crazy stuff he's capable of doing, Poroshenko, anyone, even like 1980s Saddam Hussein and the leaders of Iran. Like this is like crazy levels of war crimes. And war crimes are, you know, despite the fact that they're kind of overblown, these are real, these are, I wouldn't even say they're war crimes because a lot of them are literally not against military targets, they're against civilians even. So I'm not sure what to describe this besides the one overused word, which is genocide. And that's exactly what we're seeing. And yeah, we are reporting on this because it will be very crucial to remember exactly what the state is re responsible for as it tries to sweep all of these nasty stories under the rug in, you know, in a few years' time, maybe in six months, or maybe when Rafa is completely flattened and all these unfortunate millions of Palestinians are living in the Sinai Desert where Moses led you know, the people of Israel around for 40 years, right? So like, this is not a hospitable place. We read about this place in the Old Testament. It's not a nice place. It's not the land of milk and honey. This is the actual like bad land, barren zone, which the Lord literally cursed the ancient children of Abraham to wander around in after the Egyptian captivity. Like it's not a it's not a nice place to be in, and yet Israel, maybe even biblically speaking, is kicking these people exactly, sending them there. So perhaps the motivation is through this antichrist type uh, Talmudic view of the Torah. Who knows? But yeah, quite quite striking stories from that region of the world. Well, speaking of the Antichrist, this is Al Jazeera quoting Israeli media. There will be a discussion on Sunday with Netanyahu regarding Al-Aqsa Mosque with the participation of Benny Gantz, Gadi Eisenkot, and Ben Gavir. So this is very interesting because we know that this whole operation on October 7th was Operation Al-Aqsa Flood. It was in response to a big rabbinical storming of the Al-Aqsa Mosque, which again, we just covered Javier Malay going and saying he supported the destruction of the Al-Aqsa Mosque fulfillment of these prophecies and the ultimate coming of the Jewish Messiah, translation the Antichrist. And what are these guys going to talk about? Like, what, what what is there to discuss? Are they just going to move in on it? Are they going to pass some creeping legislation that subtly restricts, you know, the Muslims' rights to go there and will give Jews the rights to go doing more things there to prepare their red heifers that they supposedly already have, you know, at the site of sacrifice? Like, who knows what the plan is here? It very, I'm sure it will be provocative at the very least. And but this is the kind of thing that really you know, it infuriates the Muslims and it moves us in that eschatological direction that this is the kind of stuff that Christians should be really outraged at and something that 
you know, if Putin was empowered more and wasn't tied down in Ukraine and we had a Christian emperor, this is the kind of thing where the czar would be like calling up the head of Israel, like, look, man, if you don't want us to go in there and march down there on a righteous, you know, on a righteous crusade against against the star of Remfan, then, you know, then you're going to need to stop this Al-Aqsa nonsense. But it's a very interesting development. And on the same kind of esoteric front, we see our buddies in Iran are reneging on many Antarctic trees and are claiming that they're going to go down and develop their own Antarctic territory. And again, I don't know if they fully pulled out of the actual Antarctic Treaty in and of itself. I don't know if they were ever original signatories. Of course, Iran, not super close in any capacity to to Antarctica, the quote-unquote South Pole, if you believe in that sort of thing. But they are close allies with South Africa at this point, which is one of the closer countries to the early access of the ice wall. So again, maybe maybe the Ayatollah is going to drop some truth on what's really beyond the ice wall and what's what's really going on down there. Of course, Putin and Vlad and Putin and Patriarch Kirill have been down there. There's even an Orthodox parish consecrated down there. So you know, people may I think people know more than they're letting on. And of course, the Antarctic Treaty, for those of you that don't know, very suspicious, ratified in the 50s, height of the Cold War, yet somehow the Soviet Union, the United States, and every relevant country can all agree and not develop the supposedly energy-rich Antarctica, the main reasoning literally being to save the penguins, which that's how you know it's BS. But of course, it's still, you know, ratified and enforced to this day by international coalitions. If you as a private citizen travel below the 51st South, 50th South Parallel, you know, southwards on Earth, you will be intercepted by a coalition and arrested and tried before an international court and at the very least fined, if not imprisoned for an extended period of time. They did that to an independent uh, Scandinavian explorer who wasn't even trying to make any kind of cosmological argument. He was just trying to make some kind of sailing navigation record, but they can't have that because if you do that, you'll realize that, oh, I can't actually circumnavigate the Earth that direction because it's the wrong shape, if you get what I'm saying. But the 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 Iranians are going down to Antarctica. We're gonna that's gonna be one of those World War Now stories that I'm sure others won't cover very much, but I'm gonna keep my eye on it to see because Antarctica is always very interesting. And I've said since even earlier in this conflict, I may have even said this in episode one of World War Now, actually that the ripping up of the Antarctic Treaty would be something that proves that, you know, this split multipolarity is, is real. Like some people say, you know, multipolarity is a facade, you know, at the higher levels, they're all working together, false dialectic, you know, of course, with China, all these sorts of things. But if the Antarctic Treaty starts to go and people start to reveal secrets like that, then we know that, then we know that it's legit. But I want to know your thoughts on those two stories before we get into the last few segments here, Dimitri. I think it's only curious that, you know, Iran, a country sanctioned by the majority of the so-called civilized first world, and naturally now that Iran, of course, goes against these popular policies set out, yeah, as you said, during the peak of the Cold War when secrecy, betrayal, and just the Talmudic worldview dominated, right, in both the Soviet Union and in the West, when capitalism and socialism, like two sides of the same coin, kind of led led the the world the world economies forward. Finally, Iran's like, hey, you know what, we're religious extremists. Because, you know, we're these hardcore Shia Muslims, we're going to do what we like. And, you know, we're just going to go exploring in the South because, hey, no one's going to stop us at this point. So we have a Navy at this point. We're capable fully and no one's going to mess with us. And, of course, Russia will support us, at least ideologically, to go explore the South Pole. And I, I completely agree. It just needs to be done at this point. The world, these various treaties, Putin himself spoke about it in Tucker episode. These international laws, they're great, but they're only good when everybody agrees on the same principles. And at this point, the world world is strictly divided there is not just social policies we spoke about like in greece that people disagree on but even how you know 
what humans are, what sort of what a man is, what a woman is, what uh, and I'm not making a reference to Matt Walsh's documentary, but it's like the it is this understanding there's a great rift between civilizations at this point. And so why not send your naval your naval admiral, your officers down south to actually begin exploring it. So a cheers to Admiral uh, Sharam Irani, you know, who says that there are property rights to be exploited in the south, in the snow and the ice. And perhaps they will find a lot more than just snow and ice. Because again, these areas are very mysterious. You know, they go back to the great age of exploration when uh, even Russian ships sailed down, but unfortunately couldn't spend too, too long down there due to, you know, wars and conflicts around the world. But yeah, it's probably, we can even do an entire episode, right? Dedicated to Antarctica and wow. all the various explorations that took place there and all the interesting mi mysteries. It is one of the most mysterious places on mm -hmm. on earth and so it's it's really cool that iran is actually going out of its way to you know utilize at least a small portion of its resources to expand its influence abroad yeah comment below if you want to hear ether hour about antarctica i'm of the personal opinion i think the antarctic treaty is a horrible crime against god and creation i believe as creations of god we have the right to explore antarctica and i believe it's part of the broader you know, alchemical transmutation of the world mind to keep you, you know, confined in this heliocentric endless space model that, you know, allows for the Big Bang, for evolution, for billions and billions of years of history, and, you know, that kind of purely naturalistic worldview and perspective. But, you know, if we were able to explore Antarctica, I think we'd have a better understanding that, let's just say there's a more biblical reality and cosmology to the beautiful world that God has created for us. And I think... It's, all, it's the right of every young man, every young European Christian man, you know, we should hope that within our lifetimes we can, we can line up along the ice wall and advance forward, you know, like, like my ancestors in America, you know, the Sooners, you know, the, the, the Manifest Destiny covered wagon Americans that ran out, planted their flag and claimed land. I think we should be able to do that, you know, go out, claim our land, and, you know, maybe preach the gospel to whatever Indo-Aryan, proto-European peoples that may or may not live live beyond these walls. So, you know, comment below if you want to hear more about that. But in a similar vein, we got to talk about this big story in the U.S. where this huge alert went out. Of course, it's the Biden administration just trying to fish for more money to get that Ukraine funding bill through that Republicans are holding up, which, you know, pretty good on Speaker Mike Johnson for holding up against this stuff. Good on him. Probably better than Kevin McCarthy would have done. But the news, of course, came out. It was this alert that there was an imminent shift, I guess, in the balance of power of national security, like big national security development. And then Congress and the Senate were briefed, and it eventually kind of came out through news channels and, and whatnot that the news was that in some capacity, Russia had developed some kind of space nuclear connected weapon. Some people saying it was a space, like actual space nuke, you know, that they had the capabilities to put it in space. Of course, the intelligence later came out that even what they were talking about was, of course, things that Russians had proposed to do. The plans hadn't even been finalized on the Russian end as far as the intelligence was concerned. So, of course, the whole thing was a literal psyop from the White House and from the crumbling Biden-Harris administration to get more money to Ukraine. But when it came out, and before we learned that it was an op, I was a bit startled as someone who is skeptical of the reality of both nukes and space. I found found this story riveting, that they are really trying to take us into this idea of space warfare. Of course, we know Trump did the space force, and now people are talking about the future of war in space. And, you know, I think, I think on the one hand, I believe there will be some real aerial battles in the physical realm under the firmament, but... Once we start talking about miles and miles and miles and miles up there, hundreds getting close to the moon and stuff, then then I think we're getting to the point of real high-level military industrial complex money laundering because 
I, I don't believe a lot of that tech will actually be doing what what people think it's doing up there. Although, you know, some of this satellite stuff, you know, some of these, the cyber warfare, you know, getting really high up and setting off a large bomb or an EMP to disable electronics, that's that's the big scaremongery thing that they're saying. They're saying Russia has the capability to knock all of our electronics out at will, which I'm pretty skeptical of that. But, you know, people will believe anything if it gets more military contractors money but it was an interesting development i think if you want to hear more on this a little bit more on the cosmology stuff be sure to listen to our most recent q a get behind the paywall we discuss some of that in a great question from one of our listeners and if you get behind the paywall you'll be able to ask questions in the next q a which we should be dropping the thread for that pretty soon so stay looking forward to that but there have also been in reality some pretty big russian cyber attacks in europe i believe russia knocked out Wi-Fi and other connectivity across almost all of Poland, once again, some getting even into eastern Germany. So while there is scaremongering going on about Russian capabilities in America, I do believe that Russian and ostensibly, of course, Iranian, Chinese, and in general, the sort of enemies of the West, their cyber and internet capabilities are dramatically increasing. Yeah, these are really interesting stories. And it's it's even more curious that Washington somehow found the audacity to even leak such information, which it probably receives either, well, one, it either made the story up completely, as you've said, or two, they actually have still spies in the Russian administration, as well as somewhere abroad, similar to how before 2022, we saw all these stories at the end of 2021, where it's like Russia is planning a Ukraine invasion. They kept talking about it and they kept building it up right before February to, you know, the anniversary of which we're approaching now. So it's almost as if they do have some spies on the inside actually looking into some secret Russian capabilities. We're not sure if it's satellite-based. Anthony Blinken's just, you know, he informed us that, and this is a quote, this is not an active capability, right? He gave us that sort of verbatim statement on Thursday, just reassuring us that the Russians do not actually have some Star Wars type, type technology threatening America. And even if Russia did, right, what, what's, the, what's the threat that Putin nor anyone in his administration. They've actually not used the nuclear rhetoric almost during the entire SMO. Yes, the world, you know, the, the, the words world war have been used plenty of times, which of course uh, make this completely a factual reality. The world may and will probably enter into a world war type scenario similar to the Crimean War, the Napoleonic Wars, World War One, World War Two, and so forth. But will Russia actually utilize any of its nuclear technologies, which we still haven't seen? despite hundreds and thousands of Russian personnel being put at risk from the enemy directly attacking its ships as well as bases and even cities, which we speak about. We haven't seen any nuclear capacity. We haven't seen any EMP usage besides these recent stories in Kaliningrad, uh, former Konigsberg, you know, in Poland, which, again, these are probably positive developments because Russia is probably most likely the only Christian country, the only country conservative enough that can be trusted by, let's just say ourselves, as well as some of our conservative listeners to actually hold these technologies and probably use them for good, you know, in any possible war going into the future. So these aren't bad things. If Russia is developing some sort of space lasers or uh, some sort of space nukes or things like that, things which the Washington Post and Reuters are pushing out there, they're claiming that these are really bad things. But instead, I'm going to just go out there and say that if these technologies are even possible in reality, it's most likely it's most likely a positive development because Russia it, at this point is the only accountable and probably capable country of holding itself in check at least because its leaders have Christian values behind them and because at least they attend church. I would rather a Russian have EMP capabilities than 
somebody you know from the US, uh, you know, at least one of these people in power at the moment, running Congress and pushing all this weird legislation, as well as this massive funding bill you know, that they're preparing for Ukraine, Israel, and the border allegedly. I mean, this is just crazy. They spend all this money on foreign aid instead of themselves developing all these cool technologies which Russia is pumping its industry into, right? I mean, what does this say about the American industrial, military industrial complex at this point? Is it just about shooting down Houthi missiles and then crying that Russia is developing some really cool futuristic tech? I mean, it's, it looks quite pathetic at this point. But yeah, moving forward, I think the American military will really need to show itself in terms of like on a moral level, is it actually capable of retaining that number one position? Because technologically, financially, yes, it still has it. But does it have that support from the common people? Do they actually support the American military system? Or is it only supported through salaries and payments? Yeah, would would the common American person support America if it went to war in the future. I'm not sure. And we spoke about the draft in our AFAO episode and what the hypothetical potentials of that are, are and is. But yes, I think technology comes into this because why would you develop technologies for an empire literally run by Satanists? Meanwhile, in Russia, you're developing these cool technologies which can be used to protect the Christians of your country. I mean, these are really deep. These are some deep philosophical questions which I think scientists on both sides need to ask themselves. Well, speaking of the U.S. military, I think the future of the U.S. military is as a illegal immigrant brown mercenary horde of, you know, people fighting for their Hellcat and their, you know, their college free and paid for or whatever it is that they're they're fighting for. Then, you know, serving as a sort of hermetic, Kabbalistic global force where they, you know, defend the shipping routes and global commerce and the, you know, the workings of global finance so that people can continue to enrich themselves while at the same time also fighting the enemies of Israel and the you know the Star of Rem fans, so it'll be a, it'll be a very interesting force, you know, a I think a unique global military phenomenon that will be almost eschatological in its very existence. But of course, here our take on the draft in America and whatnot on the Ether Hour get behind the paywall again. We really appreciate it. But we've got only a few more stories here before we finish this out. I just wanted to briefly touch on this. We've been talking a lot about the fallout in Catholicism from. Fiducia supplicans, and then, of course, before that, the restrictions on the Latin Mass, where Pope Francis, you know, issued his mode proprio, where bishops now have the authority to basically rescind the right of priests to celebrate Latin Mass, you know, on church property and whatnot. And of course, in my hometown here, Austin, Texas, the cathedral, of course, here, Diocese of Austin, was known for its two Latin Masses, and those, as of uh, March nineteenth, in the Catholic Church, that is the Feast of Saint Joseph that will no longer be going on anymore. They're replacing it with a reverent Latin Novus Ordo Ad Orientum, which just uses the Novus Ordo, the modern, you know, missal and hymnography and, and everything and is on the same calendar and we'll be doing everything like that. So it's an attempt to satiate these people, but of course, I'm sure that itself will also slowly be phased out, which, again, I'm not happy about this. This is very sad for the Catholics, but it really goes to show you that even without all of the stuff with the homosexuality and the female Eucharistic ministers and this other nonsense, the restriction of the traditional right should be enough evidence alone, I believe, to return to orthodoxy. And that's not to say that, oh, Vatican II therefore become orthodox, but like Vatican I with the papal supremacy was ridiculous enough on doctrine. And Vatican II, of course, really sent the nail home with even removing any of the reverential and beautiful aspects of, of, you know, true Catholicism and completely disuniting it around the world. So again, I'm not gloating or anything like that, but if you're Catholic in the Austin area, you're always welcome to come to St. Elias, you know, it's downtown and 
it's very close to St. Mary's Cathedral, actually, where this used to be happening, just a few blocks away. So stop by for divine liturgy that's going on. But this is happening across the country, of course. Latin masses are being slowly but surely restricted by the Vatican itself. You know, the Vatican is singling out these dioceses and making sure that it happens. So it just goes to show you stuff, right? But Dimitri, I think you have a bit happier story from the Orthodox perspective about ancient monasteries being revived. Yes, this development, of course, uh, comes just after the Putin-Tucker interview where Putin gave a really great sort of presentation to Tucker Carlson about Orthodox Christianity in the civilizational, historical, and even contemporary life of the Russian people, which naturally, uh, how did he work upon that? Well, just recently, the Metropolitan of Simferopol and all of Crimea, Tikhon, of course, one of our favorite bishops in the Russian church, who we spoke about on one of our previous a 4 episodes, Metropolitan Tikhon announces that Putin has officially greenlit, personally, he says, uh, and Patriarch Kirill blessed this, the construction of a new Orthodox monastery, a really large one on the Crimean Peninsula. And it's interesting because Crimea is a peninsula much like Mount Athos, but of course much bigger. And this monastery will be built around the ancient Greek city of Kersonesis, which Kersonesis is one of those cities where you, know, you read it goes back to, this is probably the city Apostle Andrew actually visited when he did uh, baptize the local Orthodox Greek and uh, you know Roman people of these areas, and you know that's why Apostle Andrew the first called the brother of uh, Apostle Peter is counted as one of the Russian patron saints of like, I guess the Russian people. Uh, but yes, Kersonesis is one of the ancient cities. There's some really beautiful columns from ancient uh, Greek and Roman buildings still standing on the coast of that Crimean coastline, and the monastery will be in fact built right next to the archaeological dig. And so it'll be somewhat integrated amongst all these ancient Greek columns and buildings. I think it'll look wonderful, like a grand new sort of christening of this ancient area. But in terms of Christian history, this monastery will be also built on the place of the ancient Kersonesses transitioned into, of course, a Christian town and Christian city. And this is the place where St. Vladimir of Kiev was baptized in hypothetically 988 AD by uh, Greek priests and bishops from Constantinople. So this is one of the places where Rus was baptized and an origin point for Christianity for all Russians and a lot of various other Eastern European as well as Siberian peoples. It's 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 a real holy site and Metropolitan Tikhon just actively wearing this old Yudinavedia type hat with uh, you know some animal fur around it around the top. It just looks really class classical. You can check out the video on the, the World One Our Telegram channel where he's just giving like a quick presentation. They're also showing just the landscape. It's a beautiful land. It's an ancient place. It's a place where you've had all kinds of figures going back to Jason and the Argonauts and their adventures in the pre-Trojan War. This is a place where Hercules walked in the past. This is a place where Mithridates, the sixth Eupator, fought against the Romans. Um, and, you know, cities like Kerch as well, Penticopeum. This is, you know, I love my ancient Greek Hellenic history and the ancient Roman history. And this is one of those places where it just like, you know, you breathe in, you breathe it in. If you visit, it's worth taking in the landscape. And yeah, it's just great that it's getting this new Orthodox type christening, you know, amidst all the various other stories of persecution. This is one of those uh, white pages in modern history that look, Russia is still on that correct path of re-Christianizing its people and re-catechizing not just the people, but even the surroundings, the land itself is being blessed. I think that's a great story to end the show this week on. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. Be sure to subscribe, get your email in there to get the show in your inbox every week, worldwarnow.co, worldwarnow.substack.com. Get behind the paywall to get access to every Ether Hour. That's 31 plus episodes at this point. You'll get access to the Q&A threads where you can ask us a question at least once every month, and we'll answer that in an episode. We answer every question, and if we somehow don't get to it, 
We'll send you a long text response, so don't worry, you'll get your money's worth. Of course, subscribe to the YouTube channel, World War Now. Obviously, we do live streams there. Subscribe to us on Rumble. We're trying to build up a backlog there as well. Follow us on X, World War Now underscore. Follow me on X at Gnomerad. Follow Dimitri at Ocanonist. Follow us on Telegram. Of course, the Telegram is one of our best news feeds, World War Now Telly. That's where some of the first breaking news hits, so be sure to subscribe there. And, of course, it's a great backup. And, yeah, check out the most recent Q&A episode. I think it's a really good one. People seem to really like it. We answer some great questions, and you guys ask some great questions. So, yeah, get behind the paywall if you want to be one of those questioners and help us make some great content. You know, it feels kind of like a collaborative effort when we do the Q&As because some of y'all give some really good detailed questions. So let us know what you want to see in that regard. And, yeah, with all of that, Dimitri, send us off here. All right, we appreciate the support, guys. Thank you for your prayers, all your kind words, and definitely leave the feedback in the comments. Share the show if you liked it. If you liked any of the previous episodes, share it with your friends, family. Uh, we appreciate your prayers, clergy folks listening to us, naturally fathers of the church. We do appreciate your support. Going forward, naturally, we'll be a lot more involved. A lot of great interviews and collaborations coming up, so stay tuned. And read the articles if you're, you know, subscribe for free for a few days, have a read of our content, listen to the A for Hour episodes and see what you think. And if you really enjoy it, you can subscribe long-term and be involved with us, be engaged and look look forward for the next Q&A. The thread will be coming up quite soon. So that's for end of February and we'll be doing a new Q&A episode very shortly. So get your really detailed questions in. Thank you guys. <laughs>